0: before it's rational scientific it's all associative Mm -hmm. so if two things happen it's if two things happen at once then they become associated over time it's neurons that fire together wire together Mm. you have two things firing at the same time and over time they create a physical connection in your brain and you could imagine that as that physical connection in your brain or that association happens time and time again, the association and the physical connection becomes stronger and stronger, not only is it going to be harder not to think of that association, but if it allows you to survive and perpetuate better than not, then that way of thinking will perpetuate.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back, or welcome to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Fading Curiosity is a podcast that explores the human experience. Fading Curiosity is all about conversations, and it's through these conversations that we can learn from other people, their ideas, their habits, their routines, and anything else they've picked up along the way. It is through learning from other people that we can have blueprints to live better in any form. My guest today is longtime friend, Joe Joukowsky. On today's episode, it was mostly just us catching up. As with the pandemic, we really had much time interacting with each other because he still is living in the, near the University of Michigan. So this was when he was home for the Christmas break, roughly. We got to catch up on what we're reading and thinking about recently. And so for Joe, he's been doing a lot of reading with Eric Neumann and Camille Paglia. And so a lot of this conversation is around both of their bodies of work and what he's been reading on their different writings or ponderings we really get into different ideas about how humanity has built systems for itself and how these systems elaborate over time starting very simple and archaic to us now modern people and but you can still see the bedrock and the foundation of these systems and ideas through time and one of the fun ones we we talk about was where does the word february come from and we explained that early on the podcast and toward the end of this podcast we wrap up with talking about a newer topic for joe which is the philosophy of mind which is something that he this is the first time he iterates on it if there are errors or discrepancies or just not clear it's because it's new and that's why we talk about it right we're exploring the things that are on our own edge which is a lot of fun and so with that everyone Please enjoy this conversation with my friend, Joe Joukowsky. There and recording here. And I'll start from the beginning. Yeah, do it. I like this. This is interesting stuff. <laughs> maybe I can make it clearer. <laughs> yeah, that's too. But it's...
0: So, it... Feb... Feb... I think it's Feb... It's not Feb... It's spelled F-U-B-R-U-A. Like February. Mm-hmm. Which is the root from which February comes. What was going on there was that... February is a leather, like, whip, little tong thing, mm-hmm. that during a festival in February, the Greeks would run through the city and
1: slap each other with leather whips. They'd <laughs> spank each other. It seems so funny. Like, it just seems so, like, weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to modern sensibilities, it just seems so sh- Well, we still
0: do it. Camille Paglia thinks that's where the whips and BDSM and the leather and all this was... Hold from that association, our use of those things in that world is derived from having initially used it in that world in a very different context. So, why is it that? Okay, so one interesting thing to note is that what might have happened, I don't know this for sure, I'm speculating, but it would make sense. One thing that might have happened is that was a festival in Greece, and then when the Christians came through, they wanted to cover up the festival and the pagan ritual, like they had done with Christmas. Again, with Valentine's Day, Saint Valentine. So they just plopped mm-hmm. that on top of it. And Saint Valentine isn't, for my understanding, what was? Do you know what the Christmas ritual for that they covered up? You'd set up a tree and burn it. Christmas trees are the pagan ritual. That's where those come from. Oh, weird. Yeah. So that's still that's <laughs> sustained, right? It's just now we put baby Jesus around and an angel and don't on top burn of the it. tree and you know <laughs> burn it. You could. But so some part of the pagan ritual still remains today, even though it's thousands of years old, in our Christian, sort of Christian holiday. Now it's commercialized.
1: Yeah. And secularized. It's changed form again. Right.
0: And then (laughs) in years from now, when we're hyper-secular, maybe, or rational, we'll go, why the fuck are (laughs) Why do people keep putting little babies around? (laughs) I don't understand. What is this? (laughs) What's with these cookies? And then- Anyway, so they might have done the same thing with Valentine's Day. And so Valentine's Day, is St. Valentine, I think it has nothing to do with romance whatsoever. His story. Not that I'm as, aware of. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't remember the story, but I remember talking to somebody about it. And they were
1: like, this stuff isn't romantic at all. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like a tragedy. I'll right. have to look it up. I'll put it in the show notes if I can find anything interesting in St. Valentine.
0: And it just plopped into February. I think probably to, was to do the same thing they did with Christmas and subvert the pagan holiday mm-hmm. that the Greeks started with whipping each other with febuos. So in mm. our month language, we still refer to leather whips that we smack each other with.
1: Interesting. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Yeah, it's just such a wild thing. Like, I, I find it interesting because there's like stuff like this you find all throughout history where it, it, the meaning starts out as one thing and then given enough time, it just slowly morphs into yeah. different meanings that are completely almost even divergent from the original context in which they were yeah. created for.
0: And the ritual, it looks like to me, is a general way of trying to understand reality. It's not ritual as we think of now, mm-hmm. where ritual now is something like we, we act as a reminder of some important, meaningful thing. You take communion to embody, mm-hmm. literally, you eat it. The idea of Christ, right?
1: Yeah. And it's like yeah. a cleansing and all the extra.
0: Yeah. And the Marine Corps would have a whole ton of rituals like this, but they are explicit. Why are there blood stripes on the side of mm-hmm. the pants? Because of some battle in Tripoli or something. The blood we shed. Oh, uh, wow. They're blood stripes. They're the red stripes down the sides of blue mm-hmm. dress, blue pants. And they ex- have explicit meaning, but a lot of the rituals we still do, you don't know the meaning. Why do we put up the Christmas yeah. tree? Because we're pagans.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's really fascinating. I never even, it never even crossed my mind.
0: Right. And if you, what's cool too is that if what, if what makes somebody a pagan, for example, is the ritual and belief, then mm-hmm. to some degree, everyone who does Christmas is still pagan because you're still holding on to these rituals that have nothing to do with your original belief system or explicit yeah. belief system. But you're just embedded in this thing and you do it all the time. You have no idea why you do it. So the ritual is a – isn't something like modern ritual where we're trying to remind ourselves of some explicit idea. Mm-hmm past ritual was an attempt to figure out the idea mm. so you could imagine that they're trying to you wake up and you don't know anything you have no categories you have, don't have words for things you're you don't have causality or scientific research to rely on you're just trying to figure out what the hell makes anything happen at all yeah and so i'll contrast two cultures so there's i think it's in Papua new guinea there was a or no it might have been south america i'm gonna forget but Besides the point, there was a tribe that believed that it, that would provide, what made life happen was the accumulation of semen. They knew that uh, they saw, cause they're making associations. They see a man sleeps with a woman. He loses something inside of her, right? Every <laughs> Camille Paglia said that a man is always less than what he was when he leaves like a woman. Literally, that's he's an left. interesting thought, right? right. And it's <laughs> part of what contributes to the idea of woman is devourer, right? Is as, as the thing that takes you always leave as less than what you came in as. Whoa, so that's one i old idea, which I think is just bizarre and strange and occult enough to be fascinating.
1: Yes. <laughs> anyway, so
0: the man leaves less than what he was, and this thing that he gave up results sometime later in a pregnancy and and, uh, a child. Mm -hmm. So they think, oh, it's this stuff. That's a big baby, and that's a little bit of a sacrifice. Maybe you need a good bit of it. So what they would do is because they believed that the accumulation of semen results in the child, all the men in the village would end up sleeping with the woman Mm -hmm. all throughout the pregnancy. And the idea was that you're providing sustenance for this child to be born. Or do you keep providing so it can accumulate and accumulate and accumulate mm-hmm. and condense and poof, out comes a kid. So nobody knows who the father is. In fact, the idea of the father in some sense really is blown apart and basically just everyone's dad. Yeah. And so the whole village ends up raising the kid. There's versions of this that are much darker in the animal kingdom. <laughs> but I'll give you a con. So I'll give you a contrast. So the Greeks had a slightly different idea. They didn't think that that it was semen that brought life. They thought it was blood.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, why did they think it was blood? Because one, if you lose all your blood, you die. Okay, so something with life has to do yeah. with blood. But they also noticed that the monthly bleeding of women stops when life is about to come. Right now, she's pregnant. Now she's going to stop bleeding. So, oh, so the blood is being saved up in order to produce this child. So they thought, okay, that's interesting. There's an association blood equals death. Maybe God wants the blood or God wants death. And they notice that in, when you harvest, you have to kill the plant mm-hmm. in order for you to harvest it. And then the plants will be born again the next season. So first they think it's death and blood. It's it's an amorphous conceptualization. So have,
1: they have they combine both together.
0: And they, for the sake of fertility, conduct human sacrifices. Mm. This is, when I say the Greeks, this is... Not the Greeks like we know them. This is way older.
1: Even older than like probably the civilization.
0: This is nomadic, mm-hmm. tribal, archaic stuff. Yeah.
1: Probably before they organized in any yeah, real it, known was way. the
0: Phoenicians that became the Greeks?
1: Or the Greeks took over the Phoenicians? The name sounds familiar. If I can so find yeah, it, I'll, I'll try and put remember. it in the show notes. The timeline is all over the place in my head. But anyway,
0: so they are killing people so that they can have fertility. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking it's blood or death that allows for life. Then they notice that probably that, oh, you don't actually have to kill necessarily to do it. Maybe it just wants blood or maybe animal blood is good enough. So they start sacrificing boars or pigs Mm -hmm. and bulls. And an interesting thing to note is that both of those words are still used Mm -hmm. in, in language associated with... Sex and child not necessarily childbirth, but within like the sexual realm. Yeah. So one example is that if you call someone a pig, you know exactly what you're talking about. That guy's a pig.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. That guy being a pig means that he's something like. Grotesque or. or, I, or, or, or it's like sexual exploitation without discrimination mm-hmm. or selfishly sexually exploiting yeah. all the women that he can find that's the idea right yeah. like as a pig so the language still exists and probably derived still from there so we still have proto greek 10,000 year old that's ideas <laughs> about sex in our language
1: and that tells you something about the the context of why that would persist it, is that it tells you something that's accurate about yeah. behavior.
0: Right, yes, or it's a, just a good enough way of thinking about it, right? Yeah. Or the, the Jungian idea would be that would be that if that way of thinking sustains mm-hmm. for long enough, then it becomes a feature of the environment, and then you adapt and evolve, you evolve and adapt mm-hmm. to it. So it becomes substantiated in your Biology, in this case, in your ni- neurology. So, to put it another way, if I say something, if I think about it in a functional way, oh, this guy is a pig, or pigs make th- the sacrifice of pigs allow for children to be grown, and it's, and it continues to work,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? It doesn't mean that it causally works or materialistically works. It's just that as you continue to think this way, you're still able to do this. Yep. Then, those people who are best able to do that, insofar as the culture is does, holds it up on a pedestal, then you'll select for it. That's sexual selection. Yeah, we do this with our values, right? Like you can imagine that women who want guys that are nice, for example, will start selecting them for sexual partners, and then the kids are more likely to be nice. Yep. So now you've just subs- began to substantiate then the biology. So you can do the same thing with crazy seemingly irrational ideas. And if you do it for long enough, then you can imagine that it gets settled into the way that you think and you come pre-packaged with a way of thinking. Huh. A way of thinking that is not a rational at all. It's pre-rational, proto-rational, paganistic version of thinking. So that could, mm-hmm. in a Jungian way of thinking, would be something like a justification for why we continue to use this language more than just a cultural reason that you Mm -hmm. could actually, that it fits still because it fits onto your neurology. Another, the cool example, the bowl example, if in polyamorous, I guess they're polyamorous relationships or marriages like swinger marriages where people have multiple partners, the man who's from outside the traditional pairing who's brought in is titled a bowl. Why does that make it because if the question that a union could ask is if any title at all could have been chosen, why choose that one? And the suggestion would be that it's because it's been preserved in our culture, maybe even our inner uh, biology for some odd thousand number, thousands of years, and now it just works or maintained. So we may in multiple ways certainly in multiple ways. I don't see how you could get around it, actually. And basically, you definitely rely on ancient Greek-Roman archaic ways of thinking, even if you don't know it.
1: And is that probably just due to just because we're just building off the ideas that are the foundational ideas that we've just carried forward for so long? You build on top of it. Yeah. It's like
0: you had to start somewhere, and any complex thing had to start simply. Mm -hmm. so the more simple it is the less specific right it's general it's a pretty dull hammer here like your dull knife or whatever even
1: makes sense just going back to the blood ritual aspect of this to us it sounds like what the hell how did they get that and but if you try to think back in the simplest terms it makes sense because you have no framework you're just like that looks like it makes sense
0: before it's rational scientific it's all associative Mm -hmm. so if two things happen it's if two things happen at once, then they become associated over time. It's neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm. You have two things firing at the same time and over time they create a physical connection in your brain. And you could imagine that as that physical connection in your brain or that association happens time and time again, the association and the physical connection becomes stronger and stronger. Not only is it going to be harder not to think of that association, but if it allows you to survive and perpetuate better than not, then that way of thinking will perpetuate. Yeah, And that's the thing, is that we may have maintained the irrational, associative, general structures way deep in our way of thinking, our unconscious, that have been elaborated on until now and now we have a rationalist version of it seemingly
1: rational it to me it sounds or it feels similar to someone notices a pattern of events occurring and it's wait look just for like crop growing or something like that that you can slowly make these ideas or these connections but it only works if you can go to your neighbor or whoever else that lives by you and did you notice this too and then with enough consensus and the tribe all begins to hate behave in a certain way, yeah. you start to just elaborate it out. Yeah. And then just given enough time, people just are able to reference and update the model. Yeah. Until you get some sort of thing that to our modern eye, it doesn't even seem similar, but yeah. it's because with thousands of iterations on top of it, it just plays itself out to ever more defined. Yeah. Behaviors, I don't yeah. even know if behaviors. It maybe.
0: feels like there's. It's differentiated, but it's not lost. Yeah. And. Yeah, it's it's maintained in some weird way. Yeah. And it's really hard to explain it. It's yeah, so know. complicated, and in part it's hard to explain it because I'm trying to explain these things rationally. <laughs> yeah,
1: and it's and, not entirely and
0: rational. <laughs> and they aren't rat the the something like the process is can be rationally explained, mm-hmm. but the thing itself is irrational. Yeah, the way like of why they did irrational.
1: it. yeah. yeah. It, I guess possibly the closest thing we could get to, it would be like something like music and like how instruments evolve, mm. maybe.
0: It's an example. I think yeah. that they all evolve in a similar way. Richard Dawkins mm-hmm. talked about this idea of meme. Oh, yes. So a meme is a cultural bit of information that perpetuates and behaves in a similar way to genes, mm-hmm. so they can survive and perpetuate all this. The word meme, like the internet meme, came from that. Right. It's this here's this little piece of something interesting that rapidly spreads <laughs> and then dies out. So that's the example of most genes, but you could imagine that some of those packets of information don't die out, are adapting to something in the environment. Mm-hmm. And are able to survive longer as a result. A good example of that is the Jeffrey Epstein meme. Oh. So that survived way longer than most memes. Why? Because there was a niche in the culture for it. Mm -hmm. So it was actually functional, surviving off of something like the people's desire to maintain that conversation. Yeah. And think about that. That little, those jokes that the Jeffrey Epstein memes were surviving because they weren't just... Comedy. Now, part of the reason that the comedic memes persist well, fail quickly. Oh. They, they show up for a month and they disappear is because part of, if it's just comedy, which most of it is, part of comedy is novelty. Yes. So <laughs> as you've seen it enough, it's the niche in some sense that it was filling.
1: The joke burns itself it beca- out. Yeah, exactly. It, just-
0: it becomes maladaptive. It's no longer um, serviceable in the environment. Interesting. Because the niche that it was filling is novelty, but insofar as it continues to perpetuate, then it's that is no longer novel, and now it's out of the niche. Mm-hmm. and Now it dies, and so it just keeps bringing in new that's novel, funny neat. things time and time again. Rise up, now they're not novel. Now they die. Bang, new thing comes in. Oh, that's novel. Ooh, that rises up. Now it dies. Bang, mm-hmm. and just time and time Abid again. Flow
1: of just attention and.
0: But the Jeffrey Epstein things went. Oh, novel, funny, hilarious. Oh, there's something more here. It's filling more than just novelty. Mm -hmm. Now it's filling a social function and bang, and it survives. That's really interesting. It keeps going. And so that's just like a species has a mutation or some gene is mutated and fits some, some niche in the environment. Oh, we can walk on land for a short period of time and breathe. Turns out that there's benefits to that. We can perpetuate. Right. Where most genetic mutations Oh, novel! They do the novelty thing, or they just kill you outright because mm-hmm. they're Not bad good. mutations. maladaptive. <laughs> but it could just be that it gives you some sort of functionality, or something changes. You got in the environment and uh, survive for a bit, but it, you don't quite fit in the environment, and then you just die off. So it behaves. So memes behave the same way as genes, just on a cultural substrate instead of a biological one.
1: Yeah, it's like the the evolution of ideas in a in an interesting way.
0: And that's basically, now you push that to its conclusion. And uh, something that Jordan Peterson notes is that if if Dawkins would have pushed his thinking to its end, he would have arrived at what Jung thought of as archetypes. Oh, wow. Which are these ways of thinking that are so functional Mm -hmm. that they lasted for so long that they became a part of the environment and we adapted to them. So the culture actually ends up affecting the biology. And so you come pre packaged with these archetypes, these ways of thinking, these old ways
1: mm-hmm.
0: that are irrational, but functional. Yeah. That they seem to work.
1: And how many, there's nine, right?
0: I don't even Technically.
1: know. I, and he's got a lot. I know. And
0: I haven't read, I haven't read the, I think it's called the Archetypes of the Unconscious,
1: I can find a link to it. There's yeah. got to be a wiki page with how many there so, are. I don't know enough
0: about Jung to get that
1: specific, but I'm I'm, just cu- I was just curious yeah, how many I'm, there were.
0: I'm reading Neumann and Camille Paglia. And Paglia was, who is a feminist commentator, kind of a feminist agitator in some sense. Like she, mm. she was really early in the pros, in the second wave feminist as a pro sex feminist and was ostracized from the other feminists. Oh, interesting. By the other feminists. These Judith Butler types who did not like the idea of pro sex, they, they have a whole bunch of problems, but they were always bashing heads. And to mm-hmm. some degree, Palia is responsible for intellectually for the pro sex movement now. Interesting, Slut Walk, hey. Madonna's pro sex, a lot of pop. Music mm-hmm. is super pro sex feminist style. Mm-hmm. She has major differences with probably a fair bit of them, but is, but for specific reasons. But to some degree, you could probably attribute that to Palia. Pallia was seriously influenced by Neumann, and I'm reading both of them right now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Neumann was a student of Carl Jung, probably his best student, according to Jung, because uh, Jung, in the beginning of the book, writes the preface and, yeah. Praises the book. Fascinating. And Neumann was... It follows
1: the same pattern we've been talking about this whole time. Which pattern? <laughs> the the predecessor of an idea or the first generation starts out really rough and then yeah. you have... Which sec- is hilarious. Sec- second generation is better than the, the original yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> the, it's
0: the... It's the curse of the frontiersman. The first person to get there is always going to be bumbling around a little bit lost. Their map Mm -hmm. is going to be gray in areas and whatnot. And not very well refined. And funny thing (laughs) is that Jung says that in the preface. Oh, wow. And says (laughs) about Neumann, he's like, I I had to figure this out and it wasn't totally, it was hard to communicate. And there's this consequence of being the first person on the scene. You have to map the whole thing and you're starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. And Neumann has the benefit of being the second generation who can come in with a a map mm-hmm. and make it way more articulate, Yeah, which is what he does. So in Origins and History of Consciousness, which is Neumann's book that Jung wrote the preface for, he tries to map our cultural two things. First, our cultural uh, evolution mm-hmm. and how our symbols and ways of thinking sprung out of one another. And then he tries to overlay that onto our psychology and show how Mm -hmm. the bootstrapping mechanism that happens in development is actually a reflection of the cultural development that we've already experienced. Mm -hmm. So you can understand human, an individual human's development best by looking at historical development of humankind, Hmm. which is what I I was thinking because I remember taking both developmental, excuse me, psychology and cognitive development
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and thinking Jesus, it's I'm like, oh, it feels as if there's something here. It's I'm watching the history of humanity happen mm-hmm. in this development. I'm like, what am I seeing? Yeah. What? am like, am I blind? What's going on here exactly? This is bizarre, but you can see it in a really fascinating way is that kids do seem to develop along the path that humanity created, which is, <laughs> is suggesting what I said before, that we've maintained – the archetypes that We built
1: Yeah It sounds similar like to the same idea that It's just more progress But we're it's all given with the same Substrate So just giving enough iterations You just slowly build layer upon layer Yeah And the brain is the same thing as like any other layered system Yeah And then you just get better tools at Organizing Information Broadly speaking.
0: And you needed to have not, by definition, to some degree, you need to have not better tools to have better tools. Better than what? (laughs) The thing that came before it, which was not better.
1: It starts with nothing, you get one thing, and then it just slowly evolves. Right, you
0: can't (laughs) just start with the quad the quantum computer. You can't that's not where how you begin, right? Because there's a whole ton of stuff that had to come before that. <laughs> there's a lot of prerequisites to check. <laughs> you had to figure out every little component before you could ever get to that place. So you had to start with something worse before you get to something better. And we did the same thing with our thinking. Yeah. And maintained our old ways of thinking as we
1: evolved. And it's almost like you need you can't have technology f- like beyond simple things like fire and simple tools until your thinking evolves enough to account for more complex technology. Yeah. Because it's almost like after the Greeks, even though we probably lost some of that knowledge due to the dark age, which do we really know why that happened? Why we, uh, why we seem to regress from the dark ages.
0: uh, How do you mean the dark age is a
1: regression? Yeah.
0: Oh, well part of that is just that the entire structure the societal structure that was maintaining From the, the Romans, safety and right? comfort that allowed you to create those technologies yeah. has been obliterated. Yeah. So if you can't find food, you're not going to build special tools, right? Yes. Not You don't have time. You don't have the time and leisure. Too, to survive-
1: too busy surviving. I <laughs> can give you a really cool example
0: of this happening in a, kind of a different way. Central Asia, there's the steppe, mm-hmm. and then there's the fertile like river valleys. Yep. The steppe is arid, open, there's nothing. Mountainous. Yeah, it doesn't grow. It's not fertile soil. It sucks. But the fertile river valleys are fertile right there. You can farm, you can do whatever. So the environment exists. Bang, there it is. People get thrown into it. Mm -hmm. Some portion of people live on the steppe. Now, they have to be nomads. So these people become the Mongols, right? The Mongolian Empire and all this. And they... Hop around to the little places during which sea, whichever season now, ha- the animals can go and eat at. Right? Mm. Oh, look, it's fertile enough for the animals to go eat there. So we'll follow the animals and make bring our animals <laughs> with us, and they can eat, and then we can hunt and do all this stuff. But they have to be nomads; they have to hop around everywhere because the environment doesn't actually allow for them to be to be settled. Yep. Now contrast that with the people right next door in the fertile valleys; they can settle right? There is your long stuff they can do, seasonal agriculture. Now, because they can do agriculture and because of the nature of agriculture, they have to stay in one place. So they stay in one place. Mm -hmm. Now, as they stay in one place, a whole bunch of things have to happen. Uh, One, because they're not always on the move. They're vulnerable. I know where you are. Yeah. (laughs) And I know where I can get your (laughs) shit. You know where you're always
1: going to be like, hey, they're consistent. (laughs) So now you
0: actually need to start developing your technology for safety's sake. Mm. Walls, let's have a a proper standing army, let's do all this stuff, develops develops, and develops. And from that, eventually, you start to recognize that this is how a market develops. Oh, Is that you, I can't always find the guy, let's say I want apples, you have apples. Mm -hmm. And Joe Schmo has chairs, and I have, I don't know, hammers. Right. I go to you and I'm like, hey, I need apples, I've got hammers. And you go, I don't need hammers. I'm, I work in Orchard. (laughs) Ah, shit. (laughs) And I'm like, huh, how am I going to trade with you now? What do you need? I don't have what you need. But here's what I do know. I know that Joe Schmo does need hammers. Mm -hmm. And I go, do you need chairs? You're like, yeah, I could use a chair. Ah. (laughs) So I go to Joe Schmo, I give him hammers, I get a chair, I give a chair to you, now I get my apples. Yeah. But that's a drawn out process. (laughs) So what we did was we said we abstracted out. What's the, how is, like here, what's the thing that's in common with all these things? Something like value. How can we represent that value? We represent that value physically as money.
1: Yeah, currency in some form.
0: So currency is an abstracted version of the value that's implicit in the objects we're trying to trade. Yeah. So it saves us a whole bunch of time and effort by doing that abstraction. So now the market begins because I can not only just trade, but there's a trade market that exists before this. But now you get this more abstract version of the market where we're trading Right. This representation of value, not the actual thing that is valuable, so to speak, in and of itself. So now you have markets, and eventually, as the markets develop in these settled areas, which is still the result of agricultural being able to sit around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get people who are more rich than others. Some people can make chairs and whatever better than other people or more people turns out want chairs than hammers. Mm -hmm. And there's so much variance that eventually some people are just going to rise at the top over time or you own land or you have all
1: this access to all this stuff. Or you're just not a person that has any like skill that you're not a farmer or not a trader. And
0: eventually you get people that emerge that have enough resources that they can sit around, And have leisure time, thinking time. (laughs) They start to think. So, between the steppe and the settled. Yes, settling
1: or agricultural people.
0: They're both, they're both, they were both Islamic. Okay. Not originally, they're Zoroastrian and all this other shit. The version of Islam that exists on the steppe is very amorphous, it's very spiritual. Mm -hmm. It's by, at the time, Different times, I'm sure throughout history, the settled folks thought that the people on the steppe were not real, really Muslims. Oh, really? They're like, they're they don't know what they're talking about. They're all woo spiritual. They're the fake ones. Right. Right. And part of it <laughs> is because it's synchronized with or syncretized with Zoroastrianism. And so uh, it's half this, but it's also it's Sufi like an Amalgam. Mis- yeah. And it's Sufi mysticism happens there, which is okay. a form of uh, Islam. But they're super spiritual. Why are they spiritual and why are the ones that are sitting around very doctrinated? Why are they dogmatic? Why do they have rules? Because they have people who have the resources as a result of the settled culture that they can sit around and think about the specifics of their own religion. To
1: organize it basically. And organize it
0: (laughs) and make explicit the rules of the religion. So because of the physical environment, the, the fact that the rains come down from the mountains and make this fertile soil. You then have dogmatic religion.
1: That's fascinating. Cause it's like, we just looking at it from a steps person perspective, you're beholden to the seasons and just yeah. a moving target quite literally. Yeah. So you don't have, you all, the only thing you have to go by is good enough because if you don't just go with it, you might be dead anyways. And you just kind (laughs) of take
0: it on as a belief system. You don't got, you got shit to do. You don't have time to think about the specifics of the rules and what this word means. You're just, you got other things. You got better shit to do, frankly. Yeah. And then that's it. So you just don't bother with it. And then there's enough divergence between the religion, parts of religion that they actually no longer consider each other parts of the same religion. Yeah. Even though they fall under the umbrella. Right. So that's speciation, right. When two species or one species separates Mm -hmm. and one goes to one side of the mountain and the other goes to the other. And there's different environments
1: and and they're isolated
0: (laughs) over time. They adapt to the environment. So for so long and so drastically that they diverge enough that they're considered two different species. They can't even reproduce with each other. anymore. Yeah. So so that exact same thing is what's happening with Islam on the step in the fertile uh, environment. They get, caught into two different niches, two different environments for long enough and isolated for long enough that the actual belief systems differentiate enough to be two different species of belief.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because you can draw the same parallel within technology. So when early on, when computers were first getting super popular in like the early seventies and eighties, there was a whole bunch of operating systems, but over time, After a while, people started getting annoyed because if you had 400 or whatever, I don't know how many there were, but there's a couple dozen probably different operating systems all different from different manufacturers that all had their own support systems and stuff.
0: Pain in the ass.
1: Exactly. And then look what happens. Now we only have three. We have Linux, you have Microsoft Windows, and you have Mac OS. Yeah. So you have new idea comes to the forefront, bang, explodes. Everyone wants to jump on bandwagon. And then all of a sudden, only three or four bubble up to the surface because they just prove to be better or just have bigger market share, and the other ones just don't have enough to keep going.
0: And you can see that almost—it's almost like a—I don't know if they, there's a word for this—but something like a species explosion. Where like after a big like, bang, kind of. Right, kind it's bang. after KT extinction, right? Yeah. 65 million years ago, here comes meteor, bang, there kills all the dinosaurs. Well, there's no competition. Right. Because everybody's dead. (laughs) (laughs) So you got all the resources in the world because like you're not competing with it. It's like a party. (laughs) And guess who fills that all? Guess who takes advantage of this abundance of resources? Tiny little mammals. A billion mammals. (laughs) Well, most of those mammals end up dying anyway because first you have a whole flood of different species that show up. They can take advantage of the situation. But as competition increases... Now they're actually fighting for each other. So those that didn't evolve to be able to manage all the fighting from the first place, they're fucked. So they're gone. Bang, And now you have the same thing happening with all those different operating systems here. Oh, look, this is a new resource-laden environment that we can come and occupy. Wow, let's all eat this beautiful grass. It turns out all these people that are eating the grass can also eat you. And now they all start eating each other until only three of the most competitive species of OS yeah. survive.
1: And usually the, the even funnier thing too is it's like the ones that are the most competitive usually absorb the best parts of the smaller ones. And they just like say, oh, I like what you're doing. Yeah. You're going to be part of us now.
0: Right, they consume <laughs> them. Yeah. Which is another idea that is all
1: over our culture.
0: If you, Wait, why can I say that you they consume them? Why does that make any sense? This I, is not a body that is eating another body, but we can use that metaphor because we understand the body metaphor. And we understand- yeah. That exists in our culture. Why does that exist in our culture? Because it's a, a relation to the physical thing that we actually do. It's part of the environment that we're relating to. Yeah, it's been maintained, and that's an easy one to make that connection because you never actually lose the eating. That's something that would make sense that that particular metaphor would perpetuate because we never actually we never lose the physical eating yeah. in the process of abstracting out the metaphor. So you can always refer right to it, but there's some huh. things like February where you just don't have any idea what the hell. Right, we've it's lost referring the root. To. All you have is the <laughs> word. You don't. Nobody remembers where the hell it came from.
1: Yeah, until you just randomly run into it somehow, or until you read Camille Pally's
0: book. book and learn about a bunch of Greeks whipping each other with little. I know. Dogs.
1: It's, it's like what <laughs> history is more weird than you ever would ever expect. It's actually interesting when you just said the consume thing. It brought me to this like more of a modern idea with like food quality, right? Like now with grass-fed food and understanding micronutrients and all that kind of stuff where I don't even think in our parents' day, we were really super concerned about grass-fed food or anything like that. And I just watched a History Channel documentary called The Food That Built America. And Hmm. so it was about all these. So normally during the industrialization, we think of Henry Ford and all these companies that are like massive technological pusher drivers.
0: But, but do we think about sausages in Chicago?
1: Right. Or sure. they talked about <laughs> Kellogg cereal, and they also talked about the one I wanted to bring up is ketchup, the Heinz ketchup company. And so this guy was like a fraud. He was terrible at doing business, and then mm. he kind of he like this was his last venture. His brother, he, him and his brother did this thing, but back in the early 1900s, it was before refrigeration, and so a lot of times there was not much. There was no USDA making sure food wasn't rotten and there was a certain quality to our food. So back then when you would buy meat, you just have a giant freezer of like ice and you just throw your meat on there and hope to God it didn't spoil too quickly. (laughs) And so when you would make meat, most of the time your meat was basically already spoiled and, or was slightly not tasted great. Yeah. And so you needed ketchup itself was a normal thing that you just used and usually had a lot of vinegar in it to cover the taste of shitty meat. Yeah, And so he came up with one of the first ever like condiments that was actually palatable and good to allow for the consumption of meat more easily. Yeah. And he was able to learn how to mass produce it. And then he also was a visionary in the sense that he revolutionized his factory. He was one of the first people to believe in electricity as a tool for the manufacturing process, mm. and so he he had two ideas, right? Like, it, especially now, even us, we don't even consider ketchup to be all that unique or special because now food quality is through the roof. But back then, it's this is revolutionary, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like this fascinating idea that you can just take something. So, what to us may seem simple. But yeah. it's utterly important just to require like meat basic and now there's a
0: billion <laughs> spiritual ketchups right in the form of mayonnaise and mustard and everything else. The condiment becomes so what you get first is I think that all history can be read as differentiation and abstraction. Mm-hmm. So it's first it's the ketchup idea. Yep. And then it's a whole bunch of versions that go, Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that. I'm gonna do a different take on that, I'm gonna mm-hmm. do a different take on this. And it differentiates, it splits off in all these different versions of ketchup. That are different enough that there are different species in some sense. But what's the con- what's the commonality across all of these different spiritual ketchups? Mm-hmm. Well, we're just going to call that thing condiment, and now you yeah. have a category <laughs> that contains all of the differentiated aspects of the original ketchup. Yeah. And so we saw this exact same thing when we went to what's the name of it? Ben Ben? What was the place we went to in Huda?
1: Yeah. So it's a Mediterranean fusion type place,
0: and it's basically Chipotle. Yep. You go inside and it's the Chipotle of uh, Mediterranean food.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's ah, okay, we've just differentiated. Yep. <laughs> we just took the Chipotle idea and we broke off and made a new Chipotle. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have that a billion more times until there's, until we go, oh, what's this? What's all the commonalities? Let's give a name to the commonality. That's what abstraction is. And then name that a thing. And now we have it.
1: Yeah. And then you're going to be learning about in a textbook in 10 years. It's going to be some sort of fancy model or system.
0: (laughs) You can understand uh, history better by recognizing what differentiations have been made by the culture at the time mm-hmm. because it's from that that they abstracted out the rules, Yeah, what it's okay and not okay to do. So if they're a really unsophisticated culture, then the abstractions they're going to make are going to be overly general.
1: Yeah. And we can pull this even back one layer further. So they talked about in that same documentary, one of the last episodes had the McDonald's brothers. So we all know where those guys are from. They're, yeah. they're, their franchise is a billion dollars an industry, yeah. <laughs> and they started the entire fast food industry. Realistically, and basically, what their idea was is they looked at the Henry Ford model, <laughs> and at first, they owned a drive-up restaurant, <laughs> but they noticed that they were wasting a bunch of time because this this was right around the fifties, like right after World War II. So everyone wanted to stay in their cars were novel and new, and going to a drive-up with your car yeah. was fun and exciting, but they realized that they had a huge amount of overhead and they just wanted to have a place where people could drive up. Hmm. And so then they were like, how do we organize the kitchen so that we can basically assembly line the burger? Yeah. And boom, that shows up like within a year of them opening McDonald's and showing other people how they do their thing. McDonald's shows up and Taco Bell shows up. Hmm. Or uh, Burger King, sorry, and Taco Bell show up. Okay, yeah. And so then boom, speciation again. So now you can say,
0: and this is the interesting thing too, is now you can say something like McDonald's is the child of Ford. Yeah. Or the grandchild maybe, because there might be a step in between there, but it's the grandchild of Ford. And then you can say that every other fast food joint is now the child of McDonald's, right? It differentiated and differentiated, which now you can start to understand- Because Chipotle
1: would be like a great grandchild of McDonald's or something like that.
0: Yeah. uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Exactly. So now you can understand. See, now- the, the familial metaphoric speech here mm-hmm. works really well because in biological speech, it's literal. Yeah. But now that we're in meme world instead of gene world, <laughs> we it's more metaphorical, but it's the same damn thing.
1: Yeah. I just find this stuff fascinating because it's like these ideas all have a lineage and a legacy yeah. where someone takes an idea and say, ooh, can I apply this somewhere else that doesn't seem like it fits? But can we make it fit that way? And then all of a sudden you do it and people are like, damn, this is amazing. And it catches on like wildfire. Yeah. And it's, oh, how do I do that in another area? That doesn't seem like it makes sense. But as soon as you try it and then you find that little part of it that makes sense. Like, for instance, to go back to Heinz for a second, at the time period, most places didn't sell uh, their products in clear bottles. So what Heinz did to improve trust on his packaged bottle made it clear. So right. you could see exactly what you were selling hmm. because that would prove that the quality and that it wasn't rotten or all yeah. of these other things that would signal to the customer.
0: Especially during an era where you have to keep looking for those things all the time because there's isn't this mechanism that we built to give us fresh food all the time.
1: Yep. And because of what he built, because it's vinegar based and these things, it's antibacterial before- we really knew what that really was. Cool. And so he took a gamble because is, he had a hunch, yeah and boom,
0: which is really cool too <laughs> because it illustrates that if you have a general idea, you might be your idea might be functional in a way that you don't even understand. Yes. so he doesn't even understand how the bacteria and all this is working, but he found a thing that hey, it's shit it seems to work. And then <laughs> that's it. That's all you need to know. So I think that in some sense, truth is about pragmatism before it's about matter. It's about what works more than it's about what it's made of. Mm -hmm. And if you can get it to work, fuck it. Good enough. (laughs) It's
1: like the the guy who figured out pasteurization. So there's an actually interesting story about pasteurization. If we're talking about bacteria in the book range, they talk about this idea and in Napoleon. So the Napoleon wanted to a better way to ration for troops, because obviously when you're marching an army, you have to figure out how to feed them. Otherwise, if you have starving soldiers, they're not going to perform very well. So if you have rotting food, that doesn't help. And so he basically said to the French people and said, and scientists all over the world, I think, but he said, hey, we need to figure out how to keep food from going bad. And all these scientists tried to do what they could and couldn't figure it out. All of a sudden, this guy, uh, I forget his first name, but his last name was Pasteur. So pasteurization comes from yeah. that. And so he was a confectioner He and he had a whole bunch of experience just broadly working with food. And so he figured out this way that if you corked a bottle and then soaked it in hot water with whatever substance like meats, I think he, he even showcased doing it to a whole lamb just to prove his process, that it wouldn't get people sick. Hmm. And so it was like this idea of you seal a bottle and then you soak it in hot water for long enough, it somehow works. Hmm. And then it wasn't until later on that they the science caught up to it that they figured out that, oh, yeah, by soaking this in hot water, it kills all the bacteria. And by keeping it airtight. Yeah. You're not introducing any new bacteria Mm. into the food and boom, there you go. Like late 1800s, but it's, he beats all the experts because he just has broad experience within working with food. He's able to figure out some sort of general idea that feels true, but he can't really explain it. Yeah. And this is how science,
0: (laughs) this is how science works. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're on the edge and you're not sure what the answer is, which is what you should be doing if you're <laughs> doing sciences, you, you can't know the answer before you do it because either the experiment's been done, now you could be trying to replicate it. Different. Story. Or, yeah, which is a, has a different function, different purpose. Or you're trying to, you've got an intuition about you have a hypothesis about something mm-hmm. and you want to see if it holds up. So this is what happened with my thesis, right? Is yeah, I spent all this time. And I have an intuition about what's going on with the, how, so I thought that that mil- there'd be a difference between the ability of people to make sense out of a situation they considered military connected mm-hmm. versus civilian connected. So they had these two different bad experiences. And I thought that it would be harder to make sense out of the military one. Okay. Now it turns out that wasn't true, b- that the two different conditions ended up being no different, really.
1: So both were just as difficult or right. easy? Yeah, yeah. Either or? Yeah,
0: not in aggregate any real difference, not a yeah. significant statistical difference. But what we did find is there was a difference between people in active duty versus inactive. Oh. So Reserve National Guard this. So it's, oh, okay. So the idea that I had, the reason that I intuited that military-related stuff would be harder because I thought that the more embedded in the military culture one was at the time, the harder it would be to make sense out of this. Yeah. I was right. Right. I was intuitively but explicitly wrong. So that was the seems to be the conclusion we're pulling from that data was that the more ensconced you are in military culture, active duty, the harder it is to make sense out of these things. Mm -hmm. So it played out in a different way than I intuited, but it was... We were
1: right. right. I mean, you're at least on the trail of something. Exactly. So you just keep following <laughs> up the shit you don't
0: quite understand.
1: It's like you flipped over the big stone and that one was like something. in, And then you found a little stone in, underneath that one. And you're like, uh-huh. oh, wait, there's something else going on here. What is this? <laughs> right.
0: It's just, it's a series of following your gut. Yeah. It's like you, you have to be informed. I can't just be shooting in the dark in part because I'll just be wasting my time. Because most of the time everything but that you can think of off the top of your head has already been done. Yeah. Because- it's easy if you can think it of it off the top of your head, then it's easy to do. And if it's easy to do, then all the people that have been working yeah. hard have already hit it.
1: Plus, as a modern person, like when I look back in time, even like the people that I've been talking about, like McDonald's and Heinz, to me, as an outsider, as a modern person looking back in time, it's easy for us to say, "Oh no, duh!" Because we've seen the future. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder they were going to make it big. But at the same time, it's like these people. Are just fumbling in the dark. These have never even been thought of before, and right. they just go for it. And right. Somehow it pays off.
0: It's an intuitive thing. <laughs> they go,
1: I think I got it. Yeah. I think I've got an idea,
0: but I'm not sure if it's true. And they roll the dice, <laughs> and then off you go. You you give a shot. Yeah. Just like in science, you have a hypothesis, and then you put it in, uh, put it to the test. And if it holds up, then it's true. Yep. So you could say that. A business is a hypothesis and if it survives then it's true
1: yeah and or at the very least it it adds value in some way yeah I think it, from modern times to some degree it was like perpetuating life or in prehistoric times like early civilization it was something about perpetuating life safety and providing to the tribe and then as we've progressed through civilization it's now become this like value proposition. Where it's as we improve technology, what value does that add to society or people at the very least? And so it's, does that improve the quality of life that people have to some degree or another?
0: Yeah. I don't know if that's necessary. Okay. So that is what we perhaps ought to be asking ourselves when we create a company or something. But one, you probably don't actually know what
1: people need or want. It's so
0: complicated. <laughs> you're an making issue. a
1: gamble for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. So it's
0: Who knows? And you, and you might even try to do something that's good for people and end up doing something terrible. Also true. But there's also the danger, this is the danger of social media that you do know what people want and you're willing to give them exactly that. Mm. So they looked at the addiction literature and then figured out how to make Facebook and Instagram and Twitter yep. as addictive as physically possible. And then you're good and you want an addiction is wanting something. It's wanting something too much
1: yeah. too frequently. And you choose that over doing something you should be doing otherwise.
0: Right. Yeah. To, the, to It's to a detrimental
1: effect. Matthew Johnson was recently on Lex Friedman's podcast. He's all, he does psychedelic research at Hopkins now, but he also has a lot of research into addictive drugs like cocaine and, and things like that. And right. some of his studies, literally tries to look at how behavior changes depending on what drugs you give somebody. So they literally get these people and then ask them like promiscuous behavior type studies where they will have them, you know, sober and then give them like a certain amount of cocaine or alcohol and then give them the same questionnaire of would you likely do this with or without a condom with this different drug? Yeah. And it's like with cocaine, your decision-making just...
0: Flies Hell out the yeah. way.
1: <laughs> You're just ready for anything. <laughs> Let's do it. It's a great idea. Woo. It's, it's really interesting. Like how certain behaviors just totally, or certain things will just totally just rewrite yeah. things that you would never really not do. It's fascinating.
0: It is cool. And alcohol will not make you forget what, the consequences of your actions are it makes you not give a shit. Yes. (laughs) Right. You can if you ask somebody, hey, so what is gonna happen (laughs) if you do this? They're gonna be they'll tell you, oh yeah, I could probably get arrested.
1: They just don't care.
0: Yeah. Which is part of what makes alcohol fun, (laughs) is that you
1: don't care. That was one of the interesting things they brought up in that conversation. He said that they don't really make like poor monetary decisions with while being inebriated it's more of poor like sexual decisions like short-term reward stuff Stuff.
0: eat a whole burger when you're high
1: yes stuff like that like or or just make poor sexual decisions six
0: burgers and some ice cream when you're high how about that exactly (laughs)
1: like any of those kind of things it's like these short-term reward centers just you're just like whatever like i want it right now so i'm gonna have it yeah like it turns you more into a monkey impulsive yeah exactly i mean alcohol
0: just makes you Really, it's like stupid.
1: Yeah, impulsive is a good way. It just shuts this frontal lobe down a little well, bit. Well, part more.
0: of it, too, is that alcohol is an anxiolytic, which is why it means it decreases anxiety, which is why you actually oh. don't care. It just keeps decreasing it until you just don't care, period. <laughs> so it's too much alcohol. But if you really want to do uh, good on uh, in a public speech, wow. uh, have a beer beforehand and take- Tylenol? Uh, so the active ingredient in Tylenol uh, increases positive emotion. Weird, yeah. I read a study about that not too long ago. Now it's one study, and who knows if it's replicable, yeah. But, but either way, it's fascinating. and that probably is a bad idea to do for a long time. Mixing alcohol and Tylenol,
1: yeah, it's sound- a terrible idea. But <laughs> we're not doctors, and don't pretend to be one on the internet. Yep, <laughs> I'm nope. gonna say that right now.
0: <laughs> probably shouldn't uh, listen to me on that one, but that's that's a funny.
1: I'm actually gonna try and look it up and see if I can find a study on that. It yeah, sounds
0: fascinating, yeah. You can, and, and there, there is a slash psychology on Reddit, okay, it is great. They post stuff like that all the time. People just find cool studies and they like, check this out, and then they will just share it, so you can read like direct studies all the time. Yeah.
1: But anyway, oh, what was I gonna say? Anyway,
0: so you carry the conversation because I lost my train of thought.
1: Where was <laughs> we? Where were we going with that? The, it's interesting to me, like, cause I forget what the word that people call alcohol when we're like, early college, late high school is like confidence booster or something. I forget. Yeah. Because it makes a lot of sense when you called it anti-anxiety. you hear liquid
0: confidence. That's and,
1: the yeah. word. Yeah, liquid confidence. And then I'm like, as soon as you said the anti-anxiolytic, I was like, oh my God, there right. it is. Like- Which is why
0: people <laughs> drink when they go out to meet each other. When when men and women go out into the world to interact, especially men, you could imagine, that are uh, that have to make the move and everything, Yep. are anxious about this. Oh my God, here's all the potential consequences. I could be embarrassed. All these things. You drink until you don't care about yeah. the consequences anymore. You're
1: just that's like I just need to is. be here and just not think about what possibly could go wrong. Right, so <laughs> it, that's what that's what
0: the confidence is,
1: right. right? Oh my god,
0: it's it's that you just don't care anymore. Which is, which no shit, like you're not gonna. This is the thing. Is like, this is why frat parties turn into an insane orgiastic mess? Is <laughs> that it's here's a, we're just gonna take young people who have never been in this situation, and we're gonna. Uh, they're going to douse themselves in alcohol because they have no idea how, to, how to talk to each other. They don't know how to sit down and flirt and do all this stuff. It's all explorative. Yeah. So the only way that they th- see, this is probably not the only way that exists, but the only way that they see that they can overcome their, that they can actually do the thing that they want, which is get to <laughs> know someone, talk with someone that they're attracted to is, is to actually numb out, all of the anxiety that they're feeling in the attempt to approach that person. And they use alcohol as the medium. And then of course you end up with these uh, these insane, now son, I should clarify, th- these insane date rape allegations and everything. Right. So there's a whole bunch of them that are obviously black and white. It's you put roofies in my drink and now right. I'm unconscious, right? So there's a clear line somewhere in here, but it's there is a gray area. And the gray area is that you've just given two young people who don't know etiquette because they've never had to go out and learn it yet. They're too young. Right, so they don't know actually where the line is. They're, part of going out and experimenting is to find the line. Yep. And you hope that you learn by when you overstep the boundaries if you're healthy. Yeah, you get you, some you signal,
1: you've passed
0: Somebody smacks you in the head. Right. So <laughs> if that's the thing. is, If I don't know what I'm doing and I'm too nervous to just do it normally. Yeah. So I douse myself in alcohol huh. in order to get rid of the anxiety. Which has this other consequence of just making me a bumbling mess, but and not caring about consequences. Oh Jesus! Now is you're approaching your someone. You're approaching <laughs> somebody who also doesn't know what they're doing, doesn't care about the consequences either, and now you're interacting and trying to navigate the sexual situation and read each other's subtle emotional cues, uh, which aren't <laughs> being provided because you're both drunk. To uh, tell you when you stepped over the line and smack you on the head, but it's never going to happen because you don't care about the consequences and that person doesn't care about the consequences either. So they're not wow. even going to smack you in the head because they go, ah, eh, fuck it, what am I going to do, regret it? And then that's exactly what happens. Yeah. They wake up the next morning, oh, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> yeah. So I think that there needs to be a serious conversation about what exactly is date rape. When is date rape and when is a certain portion of it moral injury and regret?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I wonder if there's been any, it sounds like we need a fundamental reevaluation of how we like ease young people into social interaction with people. Yeah. Especially those of the opposite sex. Yeah, and I I like Pallia's
0: idea on this. So she thinks that the dating age being up to 21 was just about the stupidest thing in the world for this. hmm. Because what ended up happening was you pushed all the drinking underground. Yeah. uh, And people are learning how they can drink. And that resulted in this crazy party atmosphere. Right. This binge drinking right, craziness. Insanity. Whereas when they were 18, their parents or whoever, or when they go off to college, oh, will regulate it. If you go to a bar and act like that, an asshole, yeah. you're getting kicked out. If that smack in the head is being provided to you by the responsible adults who are running the facility. Yeah. So you've been denied... Because of the difference between the insane frat party, one of the differences between the insane frat party and the bar that you have to go out and act like a in, is that you have to go act out, act like an adult. And there are immediate
1: consequences
0: to you being a buffoon.
1: Yeah. Like you have to keep your shit together to a certain, there is an upper limit on what you're allowed to drink. Yeah. Because you can get cut off. (laughs) And if
0: you're at a bar or restaurant and you're acting blackout drunk, you're an idiot. Like people will look down on you. Yeah and rightfully you you can't keep your shit together but right. if you go to a frat party there
1: and when no everyone's
0: limit. demolished yeah there right there's there is no buffoonery the, that is The too limit much. is how much can you
1: drink before you're passed out
0: it's encouraged and it yeah, yeah. so i'm with her i think that That's you really lower the drinking age to 18 and i know that there's yeah. that there's a consequence to development of the brain as a result but i think that there are greater consequences to the development of individuals as a result of not learning how to handle their fucking alcohol.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, like, my mom... Is, and how to deal with each is, other. ...is from, you know, Eastern eastern European, Polish roots. They typically drink a lot earlier in those cultures, especially, like, even Russian and all those Slavic. Right, yeah, same in the Mediterranean. Yeah, and because I, I feel like probably my uncles probably had their first drinks around 12 or 14... And they're right. not obviously getting hammered or anything like that, and they right. probably didn't encourage- Right, and if you're go- having
0: a glass of wine with dinner at 17 with your family, that is a seriously different lesson learned- yes. about how to drink- And than, etiquette. Yeah, and etiquette, than the etiquette and drinking regulation that you're learning at a frat party.
1: Yeah. If any. Right. (laughs) I don't know what you've really learned. Yeah, I don't even know where the limit is there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure what you're really learning. Don't puke on someone. Right, exactly. (laughs) Like, I'm just trying to, like, piece that together because, like, like you said, if you pull the drinking age down to 18, that means your first exposure would be more likely in a context that your parents or some sort of guardian would be around. So you get to learn. And at the very least, they're watching over you. Whereas the difference in the current setup... You're off to college. You're unsupervised for the first time ever in your life. Mm -hmm. You have no context of whether or not, like, what is enough, right? Yeah. And no one telling you, like, making jokes about, oh, yeah, don't go too crazy. Yeah. Unless you have an upperclassman that is, like, a friend of yours. And
0: that (laughs) upperclassman does not have your
1: best interest at heart.
0: (laughs) Or just needs to be mature enough to actually do that. That. And good luck with that one. Because, I mean, you're still 22 or something. I was going to
1: say, exactly. Unless they're an older person like me or you were when we went to college, the odds of them being 22 or... Point-term mature
0: enough to know how to handle this, especially if they're 22 and grew up in the frat culture. All the expectations are frat
1: expectations. Actually, that's an interesting one. It's like, to some degree, there's like this. If I went through it, like the hazing type idea, it's oh, that's just you're you're coming up to yeah, like you. I went through that too. I remember when I was a yeah, yeah. freshman. So it's right. just like this never ending cycle that because you, that person went through it, they just bring everyone else through the, the grinder.
0: <laughs> yeah. What I would like to see in that kind of a world where there's hazing and all of this is not a bureaucracy coming in and, seemingly arbitrarily imposing some rules about hazing. Mm-hmm. I would, re- that is just going to produce a different form of hazing. They didn't solve the problem. They just put a band aid over it. Right. It, now they're just going to adjust the way tape that, around it. They're going to adjust the way that they do it so that they can get away with it. Now that there's changed rules, that's it. That's all that's going to happen. What I would prefer to have is that you have people who grow up in an environment where they become strong enough and responsible self-respecting enough that when the hazing is brought up to them do they they tell those there's enough of those people to tell the hazers to go fuck themselves that <laughs> the whole ritual dies out right right because you just can't get anyone to join anymore because no one's gonna put up with your shit that's how you solve the problem because it's ridiculous you, and yeah, not- you, you solve it at a cultural level you don't solve it in arbit- at a, a bureaucratic one
1: because it seems to me it's like maladaptive ideas, right? Because we've been talking about this mimetic mem- thing. And so if you have a culture that now has to adapt in a vacuum, it doesn't have any blueprint to lean on before. Sure, It's just going to make something up because that's what happens, right? Like it has to start with something. And so this is like generation 1.0 or 2.0 maybe because it's three, four generations of this kind of college-like behavior. And so now it's we're realizing that Hey, this model doesn't seem to be act- like accomplishing what we needed to be accomplishing. Yeah. in fact, it might be actively harming people. And so now we have to really think about wh- how to put some sort of, I don't know, mentorship in place that, is outside of a bureaucratic thing because obviously the bureaucratic thing doesn't usually work. Yeah,
0: and I I think that the way that you allow for that mentorship to enter the environment is by removing the things, the legal boundaries that are preventing it happening in an organic way. Yeah. Like having to drink at 21. If you can drink at 18, then your mentor, so to speak, is all of the people in a civilized environment.
1: Yeah. I think, interesting enough, like doing the... we, We did as parting as like early either toward the end of high school slash into early 19-year-old stuff was interesting, at least from my experience, because I really didn't drink outside of a friend's house. Yeah. And it was always supervised for the most part. But also, granted, I'm typically a more type A and aware person in general, so I'm not really a fan of just getting demolished. (laughs) Fair. But I felt like I had that like phase of let's like explore and push the boundaries in a safe environment, or at least one that was safe to me. That I kind of got that out. And then by the time I hit 21, it was like, eh, whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I did not have that experience.
1: Right. You (laughs) were in the military. Because I joined the military. (laughs) Which I guess is similar to the binge culture. It's Tuesday, bitch. Time to drink. (laughs) They play metal music and go crazy. We got out
0: 30 minutes early. Let's celebrate with three cases of beer.
1: (laughs) And we have to drink it as fast as humanly possible. Let's go. (laughs) Fourth deck. Guys, we're doing shots. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's insane. Military enlisted barracks are a all-male, depending on your unit, all-male right. version of a frat house. The right. frat house is, right, everybody there is a male, but you're not inviting women to the barracks. No. It, it People try, and a very small number show up. I feel like
1: the women are not, would yeah, not be if you're be a friends. self-respecting
0: woman, leave.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Get out. Honestly, to me, the barracks reminds me of just old-school warrior culture. It is still exactly realistically. That's what it is. I
0: mean, part of it is just young guys being also that too crazy and insane, and they're Cruellas. independent and <laughs> and they've got enough money that they're they can survive, and they don't have to pay for housing, and they don't know what the hell to do with it. Right. So and they they're there for four
1: years, so might as well do something with right, the time. So they
0: buy uh, <laughs> cars with insane, insane interest rates, uh, <laughs> and a ton of alcohol, and act like buffoons, and that's the game, right? You you, you show up on any third or any Friday night in the barracks and somebody's doing something dumb. You're putting, everybody's taking their mattresses out of the room, putting them on the ground, jumping off the third deck.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's, that sounds like young guy behavior. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: And I think it's gets exaggerated or exacerbated by the fact that there's so much control over their lives. Yes. There's constant tyrannical orderliness that all the freedom comes all out at once. <laughs> That's really interesting. And it's just, it's anarchy. Yeah. It's like you just get total anarchy or you get an insane amount of order.
1: That's Yeah. It's almost like the people that we went to school with who came into high school after going to like uh, a Christian school for elementary school or something. Yeah. And it's as soon as they get that ounce of freedom, they're just like. Boom! Go crazy. Yeah,
0: this is the Catholic girl meme. Yes, right, exactly. And it's the Catholic. It's the ones that grew up Catholic that are going to do all the crazy stuff. That is a result of that kind of repression. It's I never got to exert my own um, will and autonomy over anything, yeah. and so I don't know how to handle it, my own autonomy responsibly. So when given the option to be autonomous, I act irresponsibly. Yeah, and so you get these people that are just repressed and insulated, and it's just a- act like crazy people when they finally have the chance to it's like act a de- out. De-
1: developmental thing right there's a certain like sweet spot of like how much you need to go and explore and experience things to find out what you're comfortable with yeah. but when you have artificial exposure or, or too much clamping or too much laissez-faire yeah it's Development, it's the Dao,
0: the way. It's the place yeah. in between yin yang, the place in between order chaos, where you have uh, so much autonomy that you're a brat and you just yes. do everything that you want all the time because you think that you can do everything you want. Pout all the time, and throw tantrum, right? and mm-hmm. you're probably overwhelmed with the amount of information that you need to actually deal with
1: mm-hmm.
0: because there's no constraints on what you can or can't do. So choosing anything at all is difficult. It's like getting on Netflix and trying to pick a movie when you don't have one in mind. Right. You just scroll the whole time because you have option scroll paralysis. Scroll for five
1: minutes. You're like, yeah, oh, I guess I'm not doing anything. So
0: <laughs> you can get option paralysis there and complete your responsibility brathood. Yeah. So that's too much chaos. But if you have too much order, then the kid just ends up insulated and completely unprepared for the world. They might, at worst, at, at one of the wor- worst ends, is that it's just trauma. The moment they get right. out into the real world, all the things they've been protected from mm-hmm. happen at once and they're demolished. Or they have this insane outburst of independence. So and they
1: try everything. Yeah. They like, see life why as a buffet. Not do cocaine? Life becomes your buffet. And you're just yeah. like, ooh, that looks interesting. Right. I'm you're a little s- piggy.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Quite literally. I, it's so it's so interesting to me because it's like, when I look back on my childhood, it's not like, I never really got grounded or anything crazy, but it's like, there there's still enough don't do these certain things that were pretty clear. It wasn't like my parents ever threatened me, but it was also like, Like, you know what
0: you're about to get. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. If I didn't do certain things, like at the very least didn't do my homework and get good enough grades, my parents are going to hear about it and then I was going to have to own up. Yeah. Or if I didn't just keep my shit together. I just remember it was a lot of just like responsibility kind of things, especially going to work. Like once I started a job, my mom was like, if you go out and you party and you get too fucked up, you're going to still go to work tomorrow regardless. And you're going to reap those consequences. Yeah like right. things like that. You like, need the balance. You need, you need to, to
0: walk be- on the line between those two things, between too much chaos and too much order. Yeah. So that you can end up being a kind of person who can maneuver or navigate both.
1: Yeah. Meander through. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Tao really makes a lot of sense yeah. there because it's like, either way you have to reap the con like the consequences of your actions. Yeah. And being as close to whatever your midpoint is. Yeah. Is the
0: Right, and it has to take the real world into the, into account. This this is what this is the problem I have with the sexually repress, repressive culture, mm. is that what it ends up doing is not taking into account sex as a fact.
1: Mm. Right, it That's it is
0: sex is it is a part of the environment. Right. You're not going to change. You're not going to change gravity. You're not going <laughs> to change sexual desire. The key is to have a something like cultural Mm. interpretive framework that accepts it as a fact and then handles it responsibly. So here's an example of that not happening. Mm -hmm. Japan has uh, serious censorship restrictions, so they couldn't show a penis in any porn. Interesting. So that was their rule. They're like, no, it's too much. You can't show that. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening was that the people who were drawing porn – making like sexual comics to get around the censors end up using something that, like what looks like a dick. Well, they made tentacles. And so if right. you want to, if you want to, <laughs> right. So
1: most of us in our generation know all about you know, this, this, joke. this insane
0: joke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the reason the Japanese like porn world doesn't show dicks, but is willing to show something even grosser, like significantly more disgusting, yeah. which is this tentacle porn then. Is because of the fact that they tried to repress sex in the beginning. So is- if you had just been less stingy about it, then you wouldn't have had this fucking problem in the first place. You created a problem worse than the one that you had. Right. Because you tried to repress sex. And I think that the same thing happens on the micro level where you, the, this is the Catholic girl thing. Mm-hmm. Sex is bad. It's a sin. It's all these terrible things. You can't do, can't do. The moment they can do, they don't know how to handle it responsibly. Now they go crazy, and now they've created something worse than they would have had if they had just talked about it as a fact. Yeah. And and here's another thing that I think that creates that stuff, and why I have a, I have a really, I have a problem with the idea of sex as bad in a culture.
1: I feel it, like that comes up. Still yeah, it's the day. sinful
0: kind of premarital idea that you see in fundamentalist Christian and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other cultures, right? Is that. Neurons or, or, to fire together, wire together. So we have this associative thing where, like, A and B are flash. Oh, they're flashing at the same time. Flash, flash at the same time, bang. They create a physical connection. So if the two, if A is bad and B is sex, and they're keep flashing at the same time, then you're now creating an association between badness and sex.
1: So no matter when you have sex, even if it is good, you'll psychologically. Train and yourself to feel bad about here's it. Here's
0: the crazy thing. Not only will you train yourself to feel bad about it, it will be, do you real it'll, it goes both ways. It can be that you think of something bad and you think of sex mm-hmm. and you think of sex and you think of bad things. Oh. So imagine what can happen to a person if when now they are acting sexually, they are being primed to be bad. To
1: be lesser, whatever that means. Like, so bad yeah. could be,
0: bad could be that they think they're bad. Or they can act badly. I think that that's what, I right. think that's what happened. I think that what the- Like the, for
1: abusive relationships and things like that or I think that the like that.
0: dominant submissive interplay that yeah. goes on in certain parts of sexual culture yeah. is the result of this. And so what you end up having is that people act, I think sex is performance art. Mm-hmm. And what they're performing is the badness of sex. And so it's either the submissive, it says, I am bad, punish me. Because they have that association, mm. and the dominance says, "I'm bad. Look at me. Oh. I, look at me being bad, and then punish me for being bad." And that the and this is a result of repressive sexual culture that then springs out something worse than it intended to from the beginning.
1: Yeah, I think this is speculative, but fine. You, I feel like there's undertones of that stuff with uh, what is that movie book, book movie? Um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, that I feel like that is part of that culture just played out in a different way. It's a
0: version of that. It's also the Beauty and the Beast story all over again.
1: Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. That Yep. <laughs> just clicked right there. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me because something like, like that like historically con- consistent with, at least in Western society with like conflate, not conflating, but like trying to repress sexual tendencies and organize it, I guess, with religion is something that, it's you're denying reality to some degree. You are denying reality. And it's like by denying something that is just a true state of being a physical entity, like being about like life and procreation and all that stuff, it will always feel like, Friction, but no well, it can't w- be functional, right? Like, because if you're
0: not taking into account some aspect of the environment, then how are you going to navigate that environment? Oh, there is no wall right in front of me, watch me walk forward, Boom. Right. Oh, you, you just hit a wall, right? Shit, wow, look at that. You keep banging
1: against that wall until you
0: right. either bruise you yourself be, enough
1: and toe the line, or you
0: you can't never... be angry <laughs> that you broke your nose on that wall, right? Like, this is your own fucking fault,
1: <laughs> so the
0: you can't be angry that. The children of a sexually repressive culture end up acting out in that way, mm-hmm. um, because you're the one that didn't acknowledge the wall right in front of you, and so now you're now you've broken your nose figuratively. And I, I oh god, I had a really cool thought and then I forgot. It. <laughs> oh, around around
1: yeah. sexual culture or uh,
0: sexual uh, culture, this repression and. Oh, that I think it's in part a result in the Christian world of the mind-body dichotomy and separation.
1: Oh, interesting. Right, so they
0: don't take sex as being a fact of body. They take it as a fact of soul or mind. So it's- The it, connection
1: between two souls. Right, it's
0: this amorphous thing that can always change by your own will, and if you just have some choice, then then, then there is no sex, should you choose not to have sex. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that sex is a physical thing. It's part of body and mind are connected. They're not different things. Yeah. And so you- if you can separate them out, then you can say that that your body is just something external to you, mm-hmm. um, that like you your can vehicle in- right that you can just dictate and drive like a car. But if they're the same thing, if they're conflated, if they're I stuck feel like together, that's overly
1: me- mechanistic,
0: it's stupid.
1: <laughs> it just
0: it's plain stupid. How could it's so? How can something supernatural interact with something natural? Ooh. That's it. Whoa. Now the whole argument immediately falls apart because the, how can a ghost f- physically change the world if it's not physical? Yeah,
1: if it can't grab a spoon or whatever. Yeah, there is no <laughs> physical being
0: of the ghost that can interact with any physical world. So yes. how does this fucking exist? It's huh. the same argument that Queen Elizabeth or Princess Elizabeth or something made to Descartes. Okay. When he had his whole mind and body separation stuff, is dualism. So mm-hmm. dualism is crap. I and
1: feel like they're always... they're. Or at least we're rediscovering that link between the mind-body and then... Yeah. ...possible spirit. I'm not sure if that's
0: This is the thing that evolution acknowledges, is that the mind is a product of the body, and they are interconnected and undifferentiable. And they
1: interplay. It's just like what you're saying with the... If you associate something with bad, and then you... If sex becomes bad, then that will prime you to think badly.
0: It's not even your prime. It's just they just happen at the same time. Right. And it's the same thing with
1: the bind and the body. Like you can't, they're, our... you just can't separate them. Yeah.
0: If mind produces, if body produces mind, if it, it if mind is contained within the functions of the body, mm-hmm. then, and sex is a function of the body, then sex is a part of the mind, period. Mm-hmm. That's it it is a part of the environment including the body itself. It and so you're just it's a waste it's an absolute waste of time and it produces all it produces the broken nose that we we're talking why
1: about. Why do we so i guess the the question then would be there for me at least why do we try to separate human behavior as if it were special beyond normal animal behavior. Well it
0: is for one. Well yes. I mean like- it significantly is and and it's worth taking into account. So we're the only ones that seem to have a solid
1: abstract representation of herself. Cool. So I'm glad you had to do, because I was like, I feel like there's just, I feel like it'd be a low hanging fruit for someone who's scientific then, but like they would immediately rebel against this. Any
0: separation whatsoever. Right. Well, you're strange. There's a strange rationalism about this, that they're, they go, they do it the other way. And so I'm, I think I'm walking the middle ground, but mm-hmm. they do it a way where they go, there's no difference. Right. We're just animals. And that's cynical and ridiculous and t- completely untrue. We, we're definitely, we are animals. This is true. Yeah. And we are part of a long, elaborative structure of evolution. But we are so remarkably. Remarkably different yes. than any other species. Self-evidently remarkable.
1: Look at what we've created. Shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How we're communicating right now. Yeah, there's no <laughs> other
0: animal on this planet. And part of it's kind of Rousseauian. They think that Rousseau thought that nature was this beautiful thing and society is the thing that ruins everything. Yeah. And there's this, I. it's, oh, we're just as good as animals. Our animals are just as good as us. Nature is good. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're conflating something like goodness of, well, one, they're conflating something of goodness with society the only thing that is good is nature and all the society is bad Mm -hmm. and so really you shouldn't disparage the animals as being lesser than us because all that sets us apart from them is this evil society that we've created one goodness has nothing to do with this and mm-hmm. two, if goodness had something to do with this, society is not inherently bad or good. It's, well, it's both actually. And the Rousseauians completely miss the fact that nature is this fucking horrendously amoral monster that, <laughs> that grinds everything up. They're, like cosmic, or lambs of the cosmic slaughter is, is every living being. Just go <laughs>
1: watch Nature is Metal for a little bit. And <laughs> spend two minutes
0: watching Rick and Morty. The or that too. <laughs> that, the, it's the only show that I've watched that understands just how capricious and, terrifying reality or nature or the universe is in some sense and they do a great job representing it it's mm-hmm. it's so chaotic and it it's amoral it's so like you live you died more you,
1: another one lives and dies and I everybody's mean, just dying all the time it's, it's interesting to me because even sometimes i'll have the thought it's it doesn't matter what you do because at the end of the day regardless of if you choose to do anything or not tomorrow is going to happen and the world's going to move on without you yeah but it's like these ideas we like to think we can make a difference which you can to some degree with people close to you but like grand scale. Yeah. The world is moving along with or without you. (laughs) Right. And
0: this... Anyway, their science are wrong and all this stuff. And
1: It's really interesting.
0: And anyway, so they want to bring people down in some sense to the animal level, but then Mm -hmm. also claim that the animal level is good and that we're bad because we make Mm -hmm. society and society is bad. That's really... It's a stupid way of thinking.
1: There's a lot wrong with that. Uh, A lot wrong Probably a different... It's wrong on fundamental levels. Yeah.
0: but, But... those people are also missing the point which is that human beings really are significantly different than Mm -hmm. the rest of the animal kingdom in a way that i you'd think you would need to explain but they we create this we can i think that so there's theorists of mind philosophy of mind it's Mm -hmm. about consciousness that think that essentially what we are is a series there's a series of what consciousness is, is a series of representation stacked on top of each other. Yeah, and this is called higher-order representation theories of mind. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that. Now I might bumble this because okay. these people are difficult, and yeah, theory uh, of mind is not an easy subject. <laughs> and I only recently, and perhaps not to a hundred percent effort, threw myself into learning this. Okay, so I hope the listeners will give me some grace, but. It's like the body exists and the environment exists. Or mm-hmm. at least I here, will how about this? I won't try to explain what they think because I don't understand what they think well enough. Okay. But I can explain what I think as having been influenced by them. Yeah. So this is that works. Carruthers and Chalmers and all these different guys. Mm-hmm. And Dennett, even. There's an environment,
1: mm-hmm.
0: an embodied representation of that environment or an embodied abstraction of that environment is the body. So the body is a a whole bunch of mechanisms that are adapted to the environment. Mm -hmm. And so they're representing ways of behaving inside of that environment. That allows you to survive. So you can think of the body itself as as a physical abstraction Mm -hmm. of the environment. Then there's something like pain. And first there's behaviors. Mm -hmm. There's the reflux behaviors. Oh, that's hot. I'm going to pull away. And I can pull away before I even know that I'm pulling away. In fact, I can be unconscious to some degree and still pull away. Yeah. Because it's just a reflex; It doesn't actually need my conscious mind to do it.
1: The body is self-aware enough that it's like, nope, that's bad. It'll just act. (laughs) So
0: environment, body on top of environment, behaviors on top of body, and then on top of behaviors is the experience of pain. So that's another abstract representation of both the, what the behavior in some sense represents what it means. Yeah. Get away from this thing. It's a representation of the injury and the behaviors that are necessary for interacting with or reacting to the injury. Hmm. So you have again, environment, body, probably some actually stimulus. So like the injury itself.
1: Yeah. Some sort of input.
0: Yeah. Input. And then, Behavior stacked on top of that. And then experience on top of that. And then there's the self-aware experience is something like our consciousness. Like what we're doing. It's right. not just an animal experience of the thing. It should they have one. It's that we know that we're having it. I am the thing that is experiencing all these things. Mm-hmm. So I'm, so you have all of these different things happening. What's the commonality between all these different things? Abstract me. Mm-hmm. I am the abstraction of all of these different things that compose me. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like, What consciousness is a whole massive series of representations stacked on top of each other until it becomes self-aware.
1: It's really, man, that's fascinating. As you're explaining this, I'm just like like, trying to visualize it. And I'm sure there's artists that try to draw these insane images. Oh yeah. But it it, it almost feels like a surrealist abstraction painting because it's like, it's it's so complex
0: to some degree. It just sounds- something gray. Alex Gray, I think who does the tool covers. He, oh, okay. This is what he's doing. He's, he's trying to represent this.
1: It's, it's just yeah, I don't know if like, he knows
0: that's what he's trying right, to represent, yeah. <laughs> but it, the, you can look at it in a lot of his, okay. his paintings.
1: I'll look it up and find some stuff there. That's It just sounds so interesting to me because it's almost like you can see like the prehistoric lineage of all of our ancestors, right? Because if you believe in evolution, that means everything that came before us still exists in us to some varying degree. Yeah. And so it's, you have to have what came before, right? Like the, the through line of this entire conversation right. layered in it, whether or not we're conscious of it is neither here nor there. And what
0: <laughs> Jung was getting at was that insofar as those behaviors and everything in the body and our ancestors all had neurology then they thought a certain way. Insofar so far as that neurology was conserved, then we're still thinking in that way. So the th- way of thinking of all of our ancestors is preserved within our own current neurology. How does that thing think? He thinks yeah, he would say that it's the archetype that we maintain right. these archetypes from God knows how long ago. So you could right. even get and you could go back unbelievably far.
1: Yeah. Realistically we were, millions of years both of us have ancestors that, yeah when did the
0: first Pipe. when did the first neurons come to be right yeah who knows sea sponges have right there <laughs> are forms of they're like these cucumber type things in the ocean they have a little brain
1: like a proto-neuron right? or something and, well they
0: swim around and then they suck onto a rock and they stick there and then they eat their own brain wait what because they don't have to move anymore so once they find the right that's rock. wild they just go oh that's tasty and they eat them their own brains So they only need it for navigating in in, In an environment, the environment, and then they
1: just do away with it. a fascinating idea. So
0: I don't know how long ago we differentiated from things that simple, but you could make an argument that insofar as a system similar to that is preserved within us, then we think like that thing.
1: Yeah. It makes sense, right? If you stop giving yourself a novel environment that you have to keep navigating in, what do you do? Yeah. You vegetate. And this is, and, and you can take any, well,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you eat your own brain. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm being, I'm being a little tongue in cheek there, but. But here's another thing. So now you have environment, body, something like stimulus and then, or result of the stimulus or whatever association with it, and then behavior and then experience and then self-aware experience that's something like our way of thinking about consciousness. Mm -hmm. And then you can abstract again. So here's all these different people with all their different little consciousnesses and their behaviors and everything. And then you could say, what's all the commonalities between all these people and all their behaviors. Bam. That's a God. Ah, what's the thing that's common. What is the software system that's common across a whole series of computers? Yeah. It's a more abstract pattern of behavior than the physically embodied one, but it's still a pattern of behavior.
1: Yeah. I think the same thing about people running software that they may or may not be aware of. Yeah. And it's what your base code is what dictates how you, maybe your interests, right? If you think about it that way. Yeah. And it's you, I personally think you need to become aware of the things, especially the things that are detrimental to your, maybe not survival anymore, but what keeps you from the goals you want to achieve at a, at a individual level at the very least. Yeah, And it, it's, I find it interesting because it's like, Becoming aware of how you why or either how or why you do certain things is not an easy task. Yeah. And I mean, even thinking about this level of extraction of like just human psychology, and is I don't think many of us are accustomed to doing it. It's almost like learning quantum physics, like understanding certain aspects of that. It's like, wait, hold on. This is way beyond what I'm used to. But I think it's, but I think that kind of encapsulate this entire conversation because you start really general and basic yeah and then as we get into these more and more abstracted territories that almost are like outside of our even way of understanding the world because they're so new and almost beyond human perception I guess that you just have to take it for what it is until we can until the measurement tools catch up
0: hmm. yeah. Which is cool.
1: We're just building layers upon layers, just like the brain is doing. For <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting.
0: And part of the benefit as of an abstraction is that it can adapt way quicker.
1: So oh, like, yeah. I mean, right, yeah. so that's
0: why the culture is able to... It's
1: the like an culture en- it's evolves like an
0: or a way faster than the physical body. Mm-hmm. And so part of, you could say, the function of a culture is to adapt quicker to the environment than the body can.
1: That's fascinating. Damn, Joe. Dude. This has already been like an hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> and we just. Uh, cool. It, it always blows me away. Whatever you're like exploring and thinking about.
0: Whatever I'm thinking about. Yeah. Whatever time. interesting <laughs>
1: psychology. Because I wasn't expecting you to bring in theory of mind at all into this particular conversation. Of philosophy of mind. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And uh, just to hear the, the different stories that shit. You've been doing this psychology stuff and it just
0: continues to- Yeah, and I'm exploring a deeper level now than I was in the past. And I'm still uh, in intuitive territory and not explicit territory, but I'm trying to work on bringing it there.
1: Yeah, I think you've done a great job of just wading the waters a little bit for people to think about certain topics here. And I'll do my best to find show notes for people to explore further and try to make sense of it for themselves. I wanted to take some time here and talk about how you the listeners can support feeding curiosity. I've always believed in providing more content to whoever listens to this of value than what you'd ever pay for. I don't like the idea of having to sponsor myself with products I don't use or believe in. If it's something I use and believe in, then sure, I will talk about it and I will do everything I can to do that. And I have done that. On this podcast before. Not sponsored, but I've talked about many products that I believe in. But in the aims of choosing to create a new model that I believe in and that we should all be striving for is breaking ourselves away from the subsidized model that ads provide. And so with that, we have turned on the uh, anchor.fm support structure, which allows you, the listener, to subscribe to our content at the level of your choosing. That is either a 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99 a month, meaning that you, the listener, and me, the creator, can be transparent about how much value you see in our content, and by doing so, that allows me to have more resources to ever increase the quality of this content. And that's not to say I won't be doing this anyways, but it breaks me out of the loop of having to worry about those things because there is a lot of time that goes into this podcast, but I love it. And I hope that by you choosing to support the podcast, you know how much I care about the quality of this content. And so with that, everyone, thank you all for listening and I hope you enjoy.